Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. My name is Adam Homey. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. We have a very interesting topic that we're going to cover on today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show that has to do with something known as quantum lean. Now you're thinking, wait, quantum lean? Don't you mean quantum leap? Well, no, 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 no. It's going to be something a little bit different. We're going to define these terms for you in just a moment. We're going to discuss why it is that the workforce resists change, the biggest reason that happens. We may delve into a couple other things that deal with some shifts that we may be seeing economically in the next couple of years. I predict this is going to be a somewhat wide-ranging conversation. And to facilitate with us, I have with us a gentleman named Sean Fields. He's somebody you're going to really enjoy getting to know. Let me just tell you a little bit about Sean. Sean Fields is a co-author of a book called Quantum Lean. He has over 30 years of experience in a variety of industries, including oil-filled equipment manufacturing, food processing, and job shops working in various phases of business, including the shop floor, quality, safety, and engineering. Sean is a network member of the nonprofit organization Beehive Fund, which assists companies with production scheduling, inventory control, and developing quality management systems. He's also a columnist for the Lubbock Avalanche Journal and a licensed professional engineer in Texas. Check him out on LinkedIn. I know I'm going to be doing so myself. And with that, Sean Fields, come on in. The weather's fine. Well, well, great. I appreciate you having me on your show. Yeah, I just read off your official bio, which is so impressive that I'm not even sure I'm not worthy to be here. And it's my show. (laughs) So what we like to do before we dive in, I know you have a few really interesting revelational things to share with us today is aside from your official biography, we like to get to know our guests a little bit. Tell us about a little bit about your journey and what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and making a difference for your community market and audience. Okay. Well, you know, the, I mean, thing about it is that a lot of times you know, the way, and I, the way people get into stuff, I think probably a big segment of the country kind of does it the same way. You know, like you'll hear someone say, Oh, follow your passion, follow your passion. And, you know, like for me, uh, my passion, really, I probably have two passions. You know, one is goofing off, but the other is I actually like to improve things. I mean, it's, and the, the thing I'm getting at there when I say I like to improve things is that 
in a way, I was born to be an engineer is the way I would put it, because even from the earliest age, I always I'd look at something. I would think, how could it be better? And so like when I say I was born to be an engineer, I would do things, you know, like different experiments in my backyard, things like that. And like, you know, one time my mom was horrified to find that that I dug a sanitary landfill in the backyard. You know, I was experimenting with trash disposal and things like that. So I was doing doing things along that line. And so over over time, it's it's not like I really decided to go into manufacturing and engineering very directly. It just sort of happened because it kind of matched just who I was. You know, you look at things like being a doctor. I don't like blood, so let's get rid of that. You know, I didn't I didn't really want to go to business school or be a lawyer. And it's just kind of like I like scientific things. I like technical things. And so it just ends up you you do engineering. And I think it was the right decision for me because, you know, I've spent 30 years and I've, I've gotten, you know, a decent amount of gratification working with companies on trying to improve their situations. And, you know, more often than not, I, I felt, you know, decently successful at that. I mean, there's always you know, there are always a lot of moving parts whenever you work with a company, but you know, when it's significant amount of the time you can, you know, do something pretty nice. It, it's, you know, it's a very, uh, it feels like a very worthwhile thing. And it, you know, kind of, besides getting paid to do it, it, you know, kind of helps give you a lot of motivation to keep doing it. Yeah, that's, that's very good. So in my case, I was going to go to law school and then my super senior year of college. Yeah, I did that ninth semester. I couldn't get out of Penn State. I had to stay there a little bit longer. I uh, attended a seminar that was three hour seminars taught by this adjunct professor of law at at the the university. He uh, was charismatic. He was mesmerizing. He drew you in. He took you down a storybook path. I was brought in i was hanging on every word he said and within three hours there was no way in hell i was ever going to be a lawyer <laughs> yeah well, yeah well, so i went through so i went through that then i had a couple of jobs after i graduated one of which was so bad i celebrate the day that i was forced to resign from it is my second <laughs> birthday april 27th wrote about that in, the, in my chapter in journey success success millennial edition when got my mba in human resource management my actual focus was on getting involved with training and development, and my career goal at the time was to become a training and development director for a Fortune 100. Entrepreneurship became the next step, and then I went through various permeations of my entrepreneurial journey. So I can summarize what's in it for me with a little parable. Sean, have you ever heard the story about the man trying to understand how to fit a roast into a pan no i haven't actually so all right there's a there's a man he he's married and he noticed that his wife would cut off the ends of the roast before putting it in a pan to roast it he wanted to know why and she told him well my mother always cut off the ends of the roast and she told me that it helps the juices soak through and it makes for a much more tender juicy delicious roast well, his mother-in-law, still hale and, hard, hale and healthy, saw her about a week later, and he asked his mother-in-law the same question. She said, well, my mother always told me that when you put a roast in a pan, you want to cut off the ends because it helps the juices go through and it makes for a much tender, juicy, more flavorful roast. Well, funny thing, his grandmother-in-law was still alive. Uh-huh. 94 years old, but she yeah. still had the vim and vinegar and she was sharp as a tack. Mm-hmm. Thanksgiving, he saw the grandmother-in-law who still prepared Thanksgiving dinner. Mm-hmm. And he asked her why 
she cut off the roast. He said that uh, her daughter and then her daughter's daughter do it. So why is it they cut off the ends of the roast? And the grandmother-in-law said, son, during the Depression, we couldn't afford a bigger pan. It's the only way you can make the damn roast fit. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of gets a little lost over time, huh? Right. Yeah. It's been my experience through all of my journeys that so many times we see things that are roles and protocols and the way things are supposed to be mm -hmm. that I can prove at least 93% of the time are permanent overreactions to temporary blips on the radar that became permanent overreactions because somebody with the title had to show that they were in charge and had to do something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you can expose that and when you can surface those reasons, you can cut loose all of the things that are permanent overreactions of temporary blips on the radar. Mm -hmm. And that creates the space, the vacuum, which will be filled by more valuable and profitable activities. Right, right. And, and to me, you know, a lot of times it's like you describe in that roast, uh, you know, roast analogy or roast, you know, metaphor is that the conditions that, you know, made you have to cut the roast in the beginning really no longer exist. Right. So maybe take a fresh look at it and see maybe if there's a way to do it differently now, you know, now yeah. that the conditions are different, you know. Yeah, does cutting off the ends really make it juicier and more tender? Yeah. Maybe it yeah. does, maybe it doesn't. You know, right. you can split test that. You can do one roast with the ends on and one end roast with the ends off. You can even do them both at the same time so you have a side-by-side -side comparison. Yeah. Right, and, right. Uh, and, and the internet, we call that split testing. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So with all that, I can appreciate why there can be some skepticism in the workplace when it comes to change and why they may want to resist change. Mm -hmm. I may have more stories about this, but I know I want to get some of your thoughts on this out and I may react to them with some of my ideas. Okay. But first of all, uh, I mentioned in your bio that you have something, it's a book you're co-author of called Quantum Lean, right. which in a way is actually kind of a quantum leap. Let's define what we mean by quantum lean first off. Okay. Well, I'd say for those people who aren't familiar with lean, you know, lean, lean is based on a set of techniques that was developed by Toyota after World War II. And Toyota developed their techniques based on what Henry Ford did, you know, with Ford. But the long story short is that these ideas are called Toyota production system. And Toyota used these techniques and ideas to really be able to leverage their business where they were able to be the low cost producer, uh, very high quality you know, and really just become the largest car company in the world as a result. And, you know, what people have found is that it, it kind of got generalized into a thing called lean, which has yeah. then been used by a lot of companies to streamline their operations, be more responsive to the customer, provide better products. Now, based on that, quantum lean is uh, an approach to lean that's going after the same thing that like the, the previous formulations of lean have done. But what, what we've done when we formulated quantum lean is that we go at it in a, in a much simpler way than uh, typical lean approaches take. Because yeah. like I'll, I'll, what ends up happening, and this is to me, it's a little bit ironic, but everybody who talks about lean talks about how simple it is. But I'd say 99 times out of 100, especially when the situation's unusual, people have no clue how to introduce lean into their own business. Because, you know, 
when most of the guidance given by people, it's just so vague, it's so general that you just can't turn it into something. And so with Quantum Lean, we did a formulation that allows a company to really get consistent results in a very simple way that people can learn right off. And just, and I could give specific examples, but it's just the, the techniques of looking at the problem and analyzing the problem are just a lot, it, you know, it's different. It's got three basic ideas, but it's a lot different than what you see typically with lean right now. Yeah. Can you give us one of those examples just to help us bifurcate this more clearly, Sean? Okay. Well, uh, what I'll say is that it's really two very simple ideas that I'll say right. is that one is that a lot of lean uh, ideas go around the idea of let's eliminate waste in an operation. And one of the things they talk about is they'll characterize waste as in one of eight forms. So like they'll say, oh, there's the waste of motion, there's the waste of travel, there's the waste of overproduction, you know, but it takes on eight different right. forms. And the idea that they tell people is go out and identify these wastes in your operations and get rid of them. And you know, thing, the, the thing that I found is that uh, if you actually just look at things from the standpoint of time and not waste, you actually can attack waste more effectively. Uh, the, if I were going to give you an analogy, I think a good analogy is the is kind of like an idea that won World War II. Because like in World War II, like, like you've got a bunch of military targets that you have to, to target. But one of the, the biggest targets during World War II that the Allies went after when attacking the, you know, Germany is they went after ball bearing production. Yeah. And the, the idea was if you bomb the ball bearing plants and take out the, the a country's capacity to make ball bearings, they can't do anything else. Like everything else is out of business at that point. You can't transport anything. You can't produce anything because all machinery runs off ball bearings. You can't run your radar. You can't do anything. And so if you go after one thing, you've killed everything. And this is the idea behind quantum lean. One of the big ideas is that if you actually don't look at waste specifically, but you look at time, you actually can attack the waste indirectly because all waste hides within time. And so if you attack time, then you can get rid of the waste, but you don't have to spend all this time identifying, oh, it's, uh, you know, like I say, it's travel, it's motion, it's, uh, you know, overproduction, it's inventory, and so forth. And so, like, instead of, like, teaching people to look at one, like, to try to identify eight different things, you're now just telling them to look at one thing. So that's one, that's like one example of how quantum lean is a lot simpler. Right. So when you say look at time, yeah. uh, for uh, an example that I think comes to mind, I want to verify this with you, okay. is let's say that I notice that our people in the office are working nine hours a day. Mm -hmm. And yet it seems like a lot of them are staying over past when we'd like to close the office at five o'clock. Yeah. So I'm thinking their, their workloads can't be that bad mm -hmm. that they have to work that many hours. So by going after time or attacking time or however you want to phrase that, we begin to look at not just you know how they schedule from nine to ten and from ten to eleven. Do they really take the hour for lunch and all that? We look at some of the activities that they're engaging in within that time. We begin to compress the time to force out some of the things that just don't belong there. Yeah. Well, to me, you segue beautifully into the se a second prong of quantum lean, great, which is great. which is when we when we look at time. This is this is a this is one thing that really departs. We look at it strictly from the standpoint of the product. And when I say product, I mean like a deliverable, like if you're on a shop floor, it's the widget being produced. Yeah. Or if you're in an office, it might be one of the documents being produced. So what you would do is that you would follow 
the product and look at everything from the standpoint of the product and nothing else. And you look at the time that it's spending in its experience going through that department or through that business. And you figure out how to get the time the product spends in that business as low as possible. I mean, like if I'm going to give you uh, an analogy that I think illustrates this point real well, is that, and I, I figure most of your readers are going to be familiar with this, and I figure you are, is that there was a movie called uh, Castaway. And it yeah. had Tom Hanks in it, and he played a FedEx employee that got marooned on a desert island. And his only companion was a volleyball that he named Wilson. And so I figured that that might, you know, trigger memories with a lot of people. Yeah, you know, the movie's about 20 years old, but to me, it was a great movie. And also it really spoke to my inner lean practitioner because at the beginning, there's a scene where Tom Hanks goes into a FedEx office in Russia and a kid hands him a package and he opens the package and he pulls out a clock and that clock says 72 hours. And so what essentially is being said is that's that. Tom Hanks had a package mailed and he put a clock inside it set to zero. He started it, closed it up and mailed it. And somewhere in that FedEx system where that package should have been spending 24 hours, it actually spent 72 hours. And so to me, that's what I think anybody doing quantum lean needs to do is look at what the product's going through. If you put a clock on it, right when you started the process, like when the, by the time it's ready to be sent to the customer or it reaches the customer, what would that clock say? And to me, the uh, the best barometer for the effectiveness of a business is going to be what that clock says on the product. If it's low, then you probably are going to have a pretty tight ship. But if it's high, you probably have a lot of low-hanging fruit you can attack. And if you actually attack the time that the product spends in the business, then that has a way of getting rid of the wastes that lean wants to go after. But instead of, of like looking at waste in particular, you're looking at the time the product spends and then that, but it's a lot simpler and a lot more positive than going after it from telling an employee, Oh, you're, you're not doing this fast enough, you know, or, or that kind of thing. Cause most of the time, the way I would characterize most pro production problems, it would be like telling someone to get to work faster, you know, to commute to work faster, but they're having to go through a bunch of traffic lights that aren't synced, you know, and also yeah. they're, they're entering onto a freeway that's jammed with traffic. You know, uh -huh. they, they can spend time trying to make their car faster and, you know, change their driving habits a little bit. But most of the time that that they're spending in commute is going to be dictated by conditions that are really a little out of their control. You know, they're stuck in traffic or stuck at lights. And so to me, with the quantum lean idea, you're looking at first creating the conditions where a person can drive and the lights, the lights are timed and the freeway's clear. And then you can start looking at things that the person's doing as far as their habits go, you know, in terms of getting to work. Okay. So, this borders to me on statistical process control in a way, which is one of the things I really struggled with in MBA school. Okay. Our first semester, we had our um, course on uh, statistics or whatever the hell it was called. I can't remember yeah. the name of it, but that, that thing you have to take very early on, we are drawing graphs, not, not econ, yeah. but the other one. And then, uh, and, the ad, and the professor was an adjunct who consulted with companies uh, uh, based on the works of Deming and Drucker. Mm -hmm. So a couple of semesters later, I had him again mm -hmm. uh, for a course on man the manufacturing industry. And mm -hmm. I was thinking if we had reversed those courses and I had the manufacturing course first, mm -hmm. all those charts and graphs and everything might have actually and plot points and medians and means 
not only would make made more sense to me, but I actually would remember what the course was called. I mean, was it statistics? Was it? I don't. I don't even remember the name of it. I just remember it was a Saturday morning, and it was the bane of my existence for a semester. That great professor, notwithstanding, I also recognized that. I got a foundation for understanding processes when I had a part-time job during college working in a fast food restaurant. Mm -hmm. Give me an example. Uh, there's a procedure that took place after each of the rushes, the lunch rush and the dinner rush. It was called post-rush appropriately. There were four separate segments of post-rush, one of which was called the offline post-rush, which involved various things, such as cleaning all the grills, uh, dropping and changing the filters and all the fryers, uh, taking out the garbage, sweeping up the lot, uh, bringing inventory from the outer freezer to the inner freezer. You get the general idea that it's right. back-end prep, all right? Right. So everybody else except me who did post-rush, man, the first thing they did is they went straight for those garbage cans and took them out. I figured out something that over 70% of the entire paper and product waste that came from the service line and the dining room were generated within the half hour period after the official end of each rush. Because when you think about it, uh, that's when the people in the dining room were actually standing up to leave, and that's when they cleaned the tables. Right. And as far as the service line, that's when they did all the heavy work restocking all the, sta the sandwich prep stations. Mm -hmm. So what I would do is I would not rush to take the garbage out first. First thing I would get is a tamper, and I'd push that garbage down. Mm -hmm. So the cans, I'd, you know, jam that garbage down. Cans were still only it was still, still only about half full. They right. could keep using it for 20 minutes while I uh, got the filters dropped right away mm -hmm. so that they would have time to cool before I pulled the filter out and changed it so I wouldn't burn my damn hands. Mm -hmm. And then I also figured out that when I waited just 30 minutes after each one of those rushes, to take the garbage out, not only did it have incremental impacts on reducing the amount of garbage it went out of the store for the rest of the day, but at the end of the night, there were four garbage cans in the store, three of them would be completely empty. So the people who opened in the morning who would generate two cans full of waste mm -hmm. would have three garbage cans to work with instead of piles of garbage that were left over at night because they had to rush 20 minutes earlier to get the garbage out. So I figured out that I could do post-rush and offline pre-close. There were supposed to be two separate processes. Each one, it took an hour. I get the whole thing done an hour and 10 minutes. Right Now, every so often would have these manager trainees who would whip out the book and tell me, no, this, you got to do it in this order. And blah, blah, blah. I'd say, mm -hmm. okay, so you're also telling me not to drop the fryer filter. And you know, that thing's supposed to be dropped at every pre and post rush, whether you like it or not, no matter how much it causes people to wait an extra five minutes to get their damn fries. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, you're not pushing the, the, the but where's dropping the filter for the fryer in your little checklist. I can tell you it's not there because I've seen your bullshit checklist. Uh -huh. uh, I also have read the manual for that fryer that specifies that the thing should be dropped four times a day. Right. Where in your little checklist is the four times a day? I know more than that checklist. So this uh, whole thing got to the, the general manager and he latched onto the idea that he could save 45 minutes in labor cost. So he had the right idea. As long as no sanitary or OSHA laws were broken, if I wanted to mix and match the pieces, make it safer for myself, and actually help him cut labor in the meantime, he was all for it. Right. 
So, and so what you have is a difference between people looking at roles and a lot of these procedures that were written for us that worked in that restaurant were probably written by folks who sat in boardrooms and never had even been in the back of a fast food restaurant, even the one for this particular brand. Right. And then you stack that up against the training store manager who's compensation was tied in part to the profitability of the store and was constantly under pressure to optimize the ratio between volume and labor. Right. What do you think wins in the real world? Well, I think it goes either way, to be honest. That's where I I was going next. Yeah. Uh, You think that my way would make more sense because it saves money and time. Right. But why is it that that isn't always the case? Well, I mean, yeah, we obviously a little bit of speculation goes on there, but, you know, depending on what some like one key thing that I could bring up is the way a decision maker is rewarded may be at at odds with the thing that you were doing. You know, it just depends. And so to me, I mean, that's something I've definitely seen personally, and I'm not going to get into the big nitty gritty detail of it, but I've seen it where a plant manager if they actually made a process more efficient, it actually would go, it would come out of their pocket, you know? And so they're not doing it, you know? And so how would, depending- how, how would efficiency come out of their pocket? You got it. You got to explain this. One. Ah, shoot. Okay. I'll tell you what. Okay. This I'll just, I'll just make a story up just to change, illustrate change, this change, point. change the names to protect the innocent. I'll, I'll, I I'll, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll just give you, okay. I'll give you a good example. And this is just me speculating. Okay. Yeah. But okay. Picture you're in a plant that is uh, that actually is doing casting. You're casting, you know, you're doing a casting process where yeah. you're creating metal parts. Okay. Now, whenever you cast a metal part, you have a certain amount, like any kind of any kind of mold you do. You've got like what they what can be called gates and runners, and so there's always excess material that you have to trim off, and that goes back to a furnace for remelt. And there's also scrap. That comes off like let's say let's say we're running 20 percent scrap okay and so that all goes back to a furnace for remelt now picture this situation where this plant manager is is also in charge of buying material for the plant now i'm going to add another little fact let's say that in the accounting books the plant manager gets to take like two percent metal loss on remelt and I'm, I'm so, okay. and, and this, yeah, this is a situation that I saw and I'm not going to name names, right. but, but the long story short that I'm going to bring up to you is that if you can claim a 2% metal loss on remelt, when in reality, it doesn't even reach half a percent, every scrap piece you're generating basically creates a one and a half percent metal loss that just goes, that just evaporates into thin air. And if you're right. ordering material, you know, you can either order the material such that you'll end up glutting the steel or maybe you've made a deal with the vendor where you'll split the difference and you know you'll order 100 pounds of steel you know let's say you'll order 100 tons of steel and then you know really you only needed 90 tons of steel and so maybe you'll let the vendor pay you for five tons of steel that never show up I don't know if that's making sense. What I'm saying. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm following it. It's because yeah. it's because the disparity between the amount of remelt that actually occurs versus how much is tracked causes yeah. more buying than is necessary. That's right, exactly. Yeah. But then the guy, you order a hundred tons and they ship ninety, but no one's the wiser 
because really you're still keeping the plant running because the amount of loss on remelt was exaggerated. You know, it's it, because it's a bookkeeping issue. They'll yeah. just allow you 2%, but in reality, you're not even losing half a percent. But if right. you if you take that scrap rate down, then you're going to take down the amount of metal loss you can claim, which then takes down the amount that the that the vendor can kick back to you. And I and I can tell you the thing that I saw at one time was that this person who was ordering the material was extremely secretive about it. I'll put it that way. You know, nobody was in on what the orders were. So I'll just put it that way. So to me, that's a, that's a case where efficiency, if somebody is skimming, they can definitely not be interested in, in, uh, you know, things. And or also like another example that I could bring up is if we're talking about, uh, have you ever, you've heard of vendor managed inventory? Yep. Like why, well, no, if you're looking on the surface, you're saying why on earth would a business want to do vendor managed inventory? You're trusting your vendor to tell you how much you've got. And the second thing is you pay for that privilege. And generally, if you can take care of it in-house, it's going to be cheaper. But to me, it actually changes the way, like if you're, especially large corporations, when they're selling their stock, they can actually, if they, if they send all of their, you know, inventory to be managed by the vendor, they can offload that and increase their return on equity, even though it's demonstrably worse for the business, they can make better numbers for their reporting and they can sell the stock at a higher price. You know, that's, that's like an wow. example of where somebody could work at, at odds with what's good for the business. I don't know if I'm, if I'm making that real clear, but I, I think you get my gist. Oh, I get it. I get yeah, it. You, you pay more, but you show better numbers for the stock sale. And to me, a lot of businesses, corporations, more think they're in the business of producing and selling stock than they think that they're in the business of producing and selling a product, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. And, and yeah. you know, by selling stock, is that also uh, well in the same conversation as looking at the valuation and saleability factor of the business over time? Because I know a lot of businesses that are there uh, primarily in fact, you know, in practice, primarily their goal is to sell the damn thing ultimately. So they're looking to make it as saleable as possible. Sure. And yeah. while that's a noble goal, and I myself am working on a couple of things I hope to flip in a few years, uh, that can't be the only thing either. Well, right. And to me, it's similar. If you're flipping a business, think about if you're flipping a house. Yeah. People, people that flip a house don't typically make great long-term decisions for that house. They're making a decision that will do well for the next year, you know? Yeah. My, you my, know, I can give you an example of that yeah, one. Um, yeah. My, the house that my grandparents lived in, uh, mm -hmm. it was completed in, I think 1908, uh, still standing. Uh, it was sold out of the family in 1989 after my grandmother died, uh, after she and my grandfather, you know, while he was alive, they lived there. They bought it in like 1962. So they had it for 27 years. Yeah. It went through three other, it went through three subsequent owners. And then by the end of the third owner, the place was absolutely freaking trash, which is a shame because it had all this antique woodwork and it had a, it had this secret passageway that had been taken out but could easily be put back in by simply reinstalling a flight of steps it had uh, marble fireplaces it had things inside the walls that all people had to do was remove the plaster and would reveal all kinds of resplendent glory and a partridge in a pear tree also yeah. the th also the thing was still using that knob and tube or whatever you call it wiring yeah. and the, the, out the electrical outlets didn't even have the ground prong Mm -hmm. So it was a so basically the place was run down, and the second floor bathroom 
which had been unimproved since the 1940s, sprung a link and sprung a leak right into the kitchen, which was right below it. And there was a gaping hole in the ceiling. Yeah. So it was on the market for $17,000. And uh, I'm thinking, you know, they're probably going to end up just tearing the damn thing down. It ought to be condemned. Mm -hmm. Year later, house is back on the market for $140,000. Some flippers got a hold of it. Yeah. So... They redid the wiring, they redid the HVAC, they put in a whole lot of new uh, lighting fixtures and such because you know they had to with the wiring. The old antique chandelier just wouldn't be compatible with yeah. 2020 elect- electronics. Uh, they redid some of the walls, they fixed those steps that went down to the basement so it wasn't like you're going to fall off and die. But I'll tell you, and they, and they finally replaced the cabinets in the kitchen, which were the originals from 1908. And mm-hmm. half of them were missing their doors. They finally put in new cabinets in the kitchen. Thank God. Mm-hmm. But here's what they didn't do. They did not restore the secret passageway. They mm-hmm. did not uh, replace most of the carpets. And the woodwork still needed refinished. So also, the thing had a stained glass window. They took out the stained glass window and put in a standard window. Right. So that right there to me is an example of they had X amount of money to put into the house. They were looking to focus on the things that would probably encourage somebody to buy it, knowing that it was still in some ways a fixer upper. And their focus on where they concentrated on repairing that house was mostly on what do we need to do to sell it and realize a profit off the back end? We're probably still handing the end user a turkey. They're going to have to put an additional 40 or $50,000 in, but let's just make our money. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I saw, I saw the pictures and I felt bad because the juxtaposition Mm -hmm. between the parts that they did upgrade and the parts they just left alone, I think in some ways it could have reversed those two things and been better off, but Hey, what do I know? I don't flip Mm -hmm. houses. There you go. But, but Yeah. yeah, but, but yeah, to me, it's just, uh, yeah, you don't always get the, at least, you know, it depends on your frame of reference, right? But yeah. depending on the frame of reference, that's going to largely dictate what that decision may be, you know, in a, in a business setting. So, yeah. And so, so I bring that up because in that case, they were just looking to flip the house. Right. Now, yeah. somebody who was planning to live there mm-hmm. might have had a different set of priorities. Yeah. The electric, the HVAC, uh, the big hole in the ceiling, the upstairs bathroom, and a bunch of other things were must-haves. Yeah. But there were other things that I might have prioritized differently if I was planning to move in there beyond the stuff that made the, the house a safe place to live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Right. And, exactly. uh, and so with all this put together, I'm starting to see how we can have resistance to change. And it's a lot of these little things that keep coming up. Yeah. So in your experience, because that's, that's really the hook here as far as our audience is concerned, is overcoming this resistance to change. What yeah. are some other things you see happening that cause resistance? Well, I'll, I'll be honest. I'd say I'm personally, and this is personal experience, I don't care for change that much. And the reason I okay. say that is that probably in my experience, I'd say 95% of changes are not good. They're, they're lousy. You know, it's kind of like if your, your bills typically go up, if you work at my, any, any business I worked at, you know, any, any job I had, there were always changes made 
And more often than not, I would say those changes did not result in a more efficient, streamlined business. It actually created more work and you became less effective at the same time. And so you get stuff like that. I mean, and I'll even take it down to issues like you eat at a restaurant and you love a meal there. And to me, one of my surest indicators that they're going to discontinue a menu item is the fact that I love it. You know, and so you get these. (laughs) I I feel you. Yeah, yeah, right. And so you get these kinds of changes produced. And to me, to a large degree, it's not. Not, it, it doesn't really benefit the people that are having to bear the brunt of the change. And to me, yeah. I, when I when I look at businesses, that's what I see mostly is that you've got workforces that you know get all these changes imposed on them. They don't make things uh, more efficient or easier, and they get to make they get to figure out the workarounds and the uh-huh. extra work that's needed to make it happen. And then the people that came up with it can proclaim that it's a great success. But that's yeah. what I've seen. I'd say that's one of the biggest reasons I've seen resistance to change, actually. And to me, it's hardly ever talked about because uh-huh. people talk about comfort zones and all this stuff. And I mean, to me, there's there's reality to that. But the thing I always say to people is, like, I'll show you a lottery ticket for a hundred million dollars. And I can guarantee you anybody that's going to get that lottery ticket is, is going to experience a lot of upheaval in their life. They'll get, they'll get relatives. They never knew they had, Uh they're going to be out of their groove pretty fast. But to me, 99 out of a hundred people are going to accept that hundred million dollar lottery ticket. So to me, the idea that it's just, you want, you know, you're just into a comfort zone and you want things to be the same all the time. I don't think really totally holds water. It it really to a large degree. I don't think it does because if people perceive the change is going to be significantly better, they're going to take it in a heartbeat. Yeah. And so that's, that's what I've seen. Yeah, Sean, I've thought about the $100 million lottery ticket. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, candidly, what would have happened if I got the $100 million lottery mm-hmm. ticket? The right. first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to take the one-time payoff. Yeah, I know that knocks oh. it down to $50 million, but yeah. I don't know how much longer the government's going to be able to print <laughs> money. So I'm going to take it while the getting's good. <laughs> yeah. 50 mil. Uh, I'll probably have to break off a nice piece of that in taxes. I might walk away with $30 million out of $100 million that yeah. I didn't have to work for. Uh, right. Next several generations of my family are set, as long as I do a few things. Uh, right. Invest it conservatively, but with a progressive aspect to it. So I'm actually having the money work for me. Right. Uh, take a portion of it. Uh, not a ton of money, but a, a nice bit of it. And mentally divorce myself from it and forget that I even own it and take it and spend it frivolously because damn it, you live once. Right. So so yeah, yeah. I'll get a car. I'll get a couple houses. I'll take a couple vacations. Uh, You know why? Because I can. And I'm going to get, I'm going to get it all out of my system. And then what I'm going to do is my life will largely go on as it did before, except I'm going to have, uh, I know we have a more, I know that uh, based on the avatar of your audience, uh, I, I can't really drop too many f-bombs like i sometimes do on the episodes mm-hmm. but let's just say i have the um go go get your shine box money yeah okay. it lets me sleep very well <laughs> at night yeah sure and yeah. that that one thing right there is going to do everything that's needed for my quality of life yeah but i i can i can tell you when all said and done i'm still going to have millions and millions and millions of dollars by the time i go yeah and i'm going to have a lot of fun along the way but a lot of people don't know how to deal with that and that's why you have people who are filing bankruptcy a year after we would win the lottery oh yeah i mean yeah because uh i mean let's say it's really well i mean the fact is is that most people you know there's a there's a compassionate streak in everybody and you get all these long lost relatives you never knew you had and uh-huh. how, do you, how do you say no to people and you get or, or you then you seek advice 
and there are a lot of sharks out there ready to part you with your money and so you got those problems and so it just goes on uh -huh. like that you know well, yeah and there's also there's also the way we're programmed you know when, when we were in school we did the whole what would you do if you won a million dollars and the only correct answer was to make a list of who you'd give it all away to yeah you know who i'm going to give you know who i'm going to give my money to nobody huh. i'm going to give i'm going to give it to the me fund there, there you because go. because that is going to put me in a situation yeah. where I can actually help more people. That yeah. means starting more businesses that hire people and support families. Yeah, that right. means more ability to serve from the overflowing cup to contribute to the community in general. Yeah, if I'll, I'll check with my parents and my sister, if they still own anything left on their houses, I'll pay it off. But outside of that, ain't nobody getting nothing. And you can think about me saying that the way however you like, but that's because my mindset is, I'm going to make that money work for me and I'm going to do much more for the community than just give it away over time. I'm going to be able to keep giving and giving and giving and giving and giving rather than, oh, I wouldn't want to be greedy and keep it. But yeah. then what happens after I give it away? There's no more. Yeah. Not great point. Yeah. And I, th and I think some of that thinking goes into, and this is why I brought it up, uh, fear of change, resistance oh. to change, because right. of a sense of scarcity, we're going to lose everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. And uh, well, to me, there, yeah. And to me, it's again, it's what we're talking about. There's a sense of taking a loss, like, it, like, I'm going to have to work more, or I'm going to get less, that kind of thing. And so to me, when you're that that's part of what quantum lean was was written about is giving companies and uh, businessmen a way of approaching like improving your efficiency and improving your business so that everybody involved can benefit you know like the owner the manager the customer the employee and because to, to me it's it's it presents this simplified way of looking at things where it's a lot easier to avoid these contradictions in what people do because people often will try to pit the interest of a customer against the interest of a business or the interest of an employee against the interest of an owner and to me if you look at it the right way like let's say for example you've heard of southwest airlines yeah you know, southwest airlines has been in business for over 50 years and they've been profitable and uh they've been profitable through all those 50 years there was like one quarter where they didn't make money but the point i'm bringing up is that they've done it with basically they've used very much quantum lean ideas in making their business work and they've been able to have very happy workforce you know and they're also a well-paid workforce plus uh, really great uh you know business very good performance for investors and yeah. also for customers, very high customer satisfaction. And so that's, to me, the quantum lean presents a lot of ideas, and they're very similar to things that Southwest Airlines did. And you can achieve those same things for your business. Yeah, I think Southwest Airlines is a pretty good example. Nobody gets beaten up on Southwest Airlines. But, yeah. uh, but uh, aside, aside from that, yeah, they're yeah. one of the more interesting airlines to fly. They tend, even as they've had to unfortunately separate from some of the things that made them amazing to fly with just because of the way the industry has evolved they've yeah. still managed to keep enough things that are very unique to them like one yeah. of the secrets and this really is a very open secret mm -hmm. is uh, they have this uh priority boarding thing yeah where if you pay in advance uh that is the and it, okay, so let me let me develop that further. Okay, so you pay in advance, and it's supposed to help you get priority seating because it also gives you an alert on your phone or something within tw when you're within 24 hours or something right. like that. Right. Oh yeah, automatic check-in. That's what it is. Automatic yeah. check-in. Sorry, mm -hmm. I haven't flown in so long, I forgot. Anyway, right. uh, when you line up at a at, uh, at the, the the departure gate for a Southwest flight, 
you divide into the A section, one eighth, one through 60, and the B section, one through 60. Yeah. I figured out that unless you pay, unless you pay for the autom for the automatic check-in, you're not going to be in the A section. Right. But I figured out it's worth it to pay the extra couple bucks to be in the A section so I right. can get a good seat. Right. Uh, the reality is that I think they had to do that because it became a matter of their revenues and profitability. Hey, yeah. if you don't, hey, if you want to get stuck in the middle seat in the back of nowhere, fine. You have B, yeah. B60. That yeah. works for some people. But for those of us who want the seat that we want and we want to decide whether we're on the owl, whether we're on the uh, on the window and uh, we see that uh, we're coming down the way and we say, oh, I can tell this one seat mate is going to be a major pain in the ass. I'm not stopping here. I'm going to the next row. Mm -hmm. Southwest is the only place you can do that. Everybody yeah. else, you're told your seat number and that's where you're sitting. Yeah, right. No, yeah. right. The, the the interesting thing there, the, the thing's kind of ironic is that, you know, you told that great story about the roast being cut at two ends. Yeah. And actually, this is my opinion, and Southwest, I'm sure, has studied this quite a bit, but I've always felt like that their unassigned boarding actually is a relic of pre-9-11, because I don't know if you ever flew Southwest prior to 9 prior to, you know, September 11th, 2001. But to me, there, there are all kinds of conditions prior to that that made unassigned boarding really, really powerful. And once you got to a point that you were having to, uh, you know, like do all this record keeping and paperwork, you know, with passengers uh -huh. and so forth, to me, a lot of the conditions that made unassigned boarding powerful just disappeared after 9-11. And but Southwest yeah. has stuck with it. Southwest is a super astute business and yeah. they definitely know what they're doing. But I've always thought Southwest might do well to reinvestigate that issue because I actually think they'd be better off now going to reserve seating because I think they would actually board their planes quicker. And I think they could still do little, you know, like little things to, to make money off the boarding process as well. Yeah, so I, I think they don't say could. don't say that too loud, but I actually do see your point from an efficiency yeah. standpoint. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, I I know, I know what you mean. When I yeah. when I moved to Las Vegas, part of the reason yeah. I moved to Las Vegas is because I spent a lot of time in Las Vegas, yeah. Los Angeles, and San Diego. So mm -hmm. I'm moving to one of these three cities. I picked one where I could drive to the other two. Yeah, and I have been told so many times. Well, there's a flight that goes from Las Vegas to Los Angeles. It takes 45 minutes and it costs $130. If you're actually driving the 15 to Los Angeles, you're not really an entrepreneur. And that's actually how it sounds in my ears. Mm -hmm. Here's the way I look at it. By the time I deal with getting to the airport early and mm -hmm. checking in luggage and pre-boarding mm -hmm. and the inevitable delays and standing around, hurry up and wait, and yeah. 25 people fighting with each other to be first to boss me around like I'm a kindergarten kid. Yeah. Whereas I can just slide behind the wheel of my vehicle whenever I like, drive my own pace, stop when I want, go when I want, and I can pick my own seatmate. Yeah, yeah, I'm driving. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. And uh, I think, and I think that that leads to one of the other points that I gathered, at least when I was looking at your materials, is that folks who are faced with change may resist it because it actually goes against, not only goes against that which they embrace as their truth, but it actually counters and argues with their truth. So it's not even yeah. within their integrity. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How do you deal I, with I, that? I oh shoot, it's it's a good <laughs> question. Well, I'm I'm a big believer and I didn't make this up, but I believe that you can't 
overturn a system unless the system is first dropped. I don't know if that makes it's kind of like if it's kind of like if you want to grab, let's say you've got something in your hand that you're holding on to real tight, you can't grab something else unless you unless you let go of the thing you've got. Only got two hands. Yeah, that's you see what I'm saying. Like, and, if you've and got that, things, that's a, that's assuming yeah. you got them both. Yeah, if you if you've got things that are in both your hands that you're holding on to tightly, you you've closed yourself off to anything else unless you're ready to let go of those things. And so, the at least when I've dealt with the situation where it conflicts with someone's truth, uh, the thing that I try to do and I try to get them to do it is they've got to like they got to have enough information come in where they have invalidated their their scheme in their mind and they drop their scheme like they say this scheme doesn't work for me anymore and now I can be open to to grabbing something else but I don't believe you can be open to grabbing something else until you've dropped the thing you're holding on to but that's you know that's been but yeah you often enough you have to let people discover that for themselves you know because like mark twain has the famous saying it's easier to fool somebody than to convince them they're being fooled you know and so it's like uh-huh. people have people have to talk themselves into things you know that's a real interesting thing way of looking at it yeah. uh and you know and i don't want to go down the rabbit hole of how do we define a conspiracy theory but how many times have we seen things that were previously labeled conspiracy theories that have been borne out to actually been factual oh sure yeah and vice versa well well right and i mean to me yeah i don't, I don't like you said i'm not getting down to the rabbit hole but i mean yeah. conspir- conspiracies are just part of human history i mean people if if you have two people gathered together you've got some kind of conspiracy going on like you, you and i have a conspiracy to create this podcast you know yeah that's the way i might put it Ooh. <laughs> yeah there you go Ooh, yeah. we're getting some cloak and dagger stuff here <laughs> there, there you go there you go. i like yeah. this <laughs> yeah there you go Okay. Well, uh, now that I, now that I know I'm involved in a conspiracy <laughs> to, it, it to uh, emancipate the power of information, <laughs> there and you help go. entrepreneurs yeah. serve their yeah. market from their intersection yeah. of their brilliance and their passion, I'm down with it. There you go. And it sounds so much sexier when you can package it as a conspiracy, right? So. Oh hell yeah! Like, yeah. or or if you call it arbitrage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And 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 in change management, and I mean this yeah. with all love because I uh, do some work in the change management industry through one of my clients, and uh, we've had change management topics on this show. Mm-hmm. In fact, I would kind of consider this, in a way, sort of being in line with those. In a way, uh, we hear a lot about lean and agile, so I just throw in a little lean, little agile. Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, now we're making change. Mm-hmm. Not only making change, we're making dollars and cents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh-huh. We can have some fun with this all day long. Right. But yeah. Uh, I love everything you're doing here. I love the quantum lean. I did have the opportunity to read your book, and I do encourage people to get a copy of it for themselves. Okay. So in the last couple minutes we have here, what I want to do is I want to turn the floor over to you one more time. Okay. And uh, just tell us you know, some of what you're actively working on right now. Okay. And for those who want to take this whole thing of overcoming resistance to change to the next level, how do they get a hold of you and what they have to look forward to once that happens? Okay. Yeah. I mean, at this pretty much it's uh, the stage of the game. The things I'm working on are very similar to what I've been working on for, for quite a while, which yeah. is, you know, I work with businesses to, you know, and I'm working with several right now to help them, you know, improve their operations. Uh, the other, the other thing is I'm spreading, you know, I'm like 
doing things like going on podcasts and spreading the word about the quantum lean system just to try to get people to, you know, to be aware of it. And then they can decide for themselves, uh, you know, if it makes sense for their situation. You know, I think more often than not, people will make that decision, you know, in the affirmative. And, and the thing that I would say to anybody that's weighing this out, if you've heard about lean, but you don't know much about it, I would recommend you, can, you do quantum lean first because it's going to be a good, simple introduction to lean. And I think it's going to give you a system that's going to allow you to implement it in a tangible way in your place, because that yeah. is one place I'd say it's, it's really weak in terms of how people describe lean. I just recently saw that there have been over 10,000 books written about lean systems and lean techniques. And to me, what, what, I mean, I've read quite a few, but what they lack is some kind of practical or practicable way to put lean into action. And so quantum lean will do that for you. The other thing is that people that have done lean, especially those who've been disappointed, because a lot of people have tried to do it and have been disappointed by the results. I really recommend you give quantum lean a try because I think that you're that we that we'll be able, this book will be able to restore your confidence and being able to put a lean system to work for your business. So, you know, I'd say that. And, you know, kind of like alluding to your other part of the question, I would encourage people, you know, if you read something, you know, not everything's clear. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I don't rule out that something that I or the co-author put in there may not be real clear, but, you know, just get in touch with us. Not a big deal. You know, we'll write you, talk to you, whatever. You know, that's that's not a big deal. And it's not like we're going to say, you know, we're part of a nonprofit organization called Beehive Fund. And if you just want to communicate with us, it's not like we say, you know, put, put a certain amount of money in our bank account. You know, we, we just talk. We know we're. We're normal guys. And so, yeah. you know, just write us like my email address is uh, s.fields, F-I-E-L-D-S, at beehivefund.org. And also you can go to the website, beehivefund, B-E-E-H-I-V-E, fund, F-U-N-D, dot O-R-G, and find out more. And you can get in touch with us that way as well. And, you know, to me, if you've got, you know, we work with companies on all kinds of issues, not just lean, but if you've got uh -huh. something that, that's bothering you, that, that you know, you think that there's some kind of problem or some kind of improvement, you know, you can certainly bounce things off of us and, you know, see what happens from there. Yeah. And I, and I, and I love the ideas of lean and agile. They are two things that I, when I work with my uh, corporate consulting clients and also mm -hmm. through our podcast reach system mm -hmm. where we work with entrepreneurs through an intensive process to get their mm -hmm. podcasts up and running quickly. Uh, there's leanness and agility in that. I've right. done these things so often I can do them backwards, blindfolded, mm -hmm. uh, candidly, and at the same time also maintain the situational awareness mm -hmm. while I'm walking backwards, blindfolded, to be able to adapt to whatever's actually on the ground with that situation. Uh, the podcast reach system is, uh, it's both a specific formula and it's also customizable to the end user, a very difficult balance for some people to strike. But the point being is, I wanted to have you here today because I wanted to get a little bit more into lean, mm -hmm. tell people actually understand it's a lot more than just cutting labor or telling somebody they only have 45 minutes when they used to have two hours or yeah. slashing the budget or laying people off. Oh, yeah. It, uh, and I know we told a lot of stories here. Mm -hmm. This interview may have felt it actually meandered a little bit, but that was by design because mm -hmm. I wanted our listeners to take journeys in their own minds through mm -hmm. things that may have been similar to some of the stories you and I shared with each other right. and discover that there may be places in their life outside the workplace where they can start thinking lean. Oh, yeah. And the more it becomes part of 
who you are and what you do rather than just a thing that happens at work, yeah. the more your lifestyle, your business, and your career will benefit yep. from the joys of lean. So I am so happy we could take that quantum lean leap today. Oh, yeah, me too. I, I enjoyed it very much. Yep. So Sean Fields, thank you so much for playing with us here today at the Business Creators Radio Show. It has been an honor and believe me, an education. Well, likewise, it's been the same for me. I really appreciate you having me on. All right. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.